In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear saints, the Lord's Prayer has seven petitions, and every petition asks something from God. It asks God for something. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Give us this day our daily bread, and so on. And the entire direction of the Lord's Prayer is from God to us. It is Him giving things to us, uh, except for one petition, and that is the fifth petition which says, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And here, it is not just about us and God, but now our enemies and our neighbors, our brothers, and those who have sinned against us now enter the prayer. They enter into the picture. The entire prayer we are asking to get something from God, and then now this petition we promise to give something to our brother, which is namely the forgiveness of sins, that the Christian will be marked by that, the forgiveness of sins. Uh, Every petition of the Lord's Prayer sounds good. It sounds like something we want, but I don't think many people like this one, this petition. And in fact, C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, had this great quote. He says, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea, until they have something to forgive. (laughs) Uh, When you have something to forgive, then you don't like it so much anymore. So, and that's, and that's true because forgiveness is not easy. And contrary to all the pseudo Christian pop psychology books out there, forgiving other people doesn't make you feel better. And it's not for you. Uh, In reality, forgiveness and forgiving others is painful. Because it is doing the exact opposite of what your heart naturally wants to do, which is revenge, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And forgiveness is the opposite of that. So, and forgiveness isn't for you, like for your sake. Uh, forgiveness is for your neighbor's sake, uh, to make your neighbor feel better. That's what it's for. It's a selfless thing, not a selfish thing. So forgiveness isn't easy. And if you don't believe that, if you think it is easy, then open your eyes, look to the cross and see Christ, your dear Lord, what he endured to forgive you and the world. Now, the gospel lesson we heard from today is uh, Matthew chapter 18, and it's a parable about the fifth petition of the Lord's prayer. It's like an enactment or the movie version of it, what it looks like to gain and uh, claim and receive forgiveness from God, but then to refuse to forgive your neighbor, right? That's, that's what uh, Matthew 18 is. <clears throat> and before we get into the parable, I want you to understand the context. The gospel lesson began with the words, therefore, which means something happens right beforehand. And it was this, that Peter went up to Jesus and he says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Uh, So first of all, Peter isn't talking about general sins. Uh, He's talking about a specific repeated sin against him. How often will I forgive him for this exact sin? Right. And and uh, so so the question is, if somebody keeps committing the same sin over and over and over again against me, how many chances do I give him? Uh, How many times do I forgive him? And then he says seven. Is that is that enough? And actually, Peter's being generous because the Pharisees and the Jews would require three times. So you forgive him three times and then it's out. So Peter's saying, well, more than double that, uh, should I forgive him? 
Um, and then Jesus responds this way. He says, I don't say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. That's 490 times for the same sin. Uh, the point is, how are you even supposed to count that or keep track of it? Uh, three sins I can count, seven sins I can count, but 490 I can't. You can't keep track of it. And that is the point. Don't keep track of it. You don't, keep, you don't count. Uh, and then you just keep forgiving. And then comes the parable where, which Jesus uh, be, uh, uh, then follows uh, this, this uh, text. And so this is what prompts Jesus to speak this parable. And it's very difficult to comprehend the weight of sin because uh, it seems like nothing to us. But what Jesus does in this parable is he finds a way to compare sins with something that we relate to. So he, he uses money. And he's, he assigns a sort of numerical value to sins, if you could do this, uh, so that our minds could kind of begin to understand what's going on. So the parable he gives is this. <clears throat> there was a king who wished to settle accounts. Uh, in other words, he's running an audit over all of his accounts. And in this parable, there are three characters. There's three people. There is the king, um, and then there's the servant of the king, and then there's the servant's servant. Right? So there, there, there's that hierarchy there. And the king lends out money to the servant, and the servant lent out money to his servant. And the amount that the servant owed the king was 10,000 talents, and the amount that the servant's servant owed that servant was 100 denarii. Uh, now, I, I actually tried. You guys know one of my weaknesses is math. I'm not so good at this. But uh, I've tried to convert this into today's currency. And there's a lot of uh, things lost in translation. There's a lot of things influencing this. The cost of living, uh, um, inflation, taxes, those, those sort of things. So figuring out the dollar amount of this parable is very, very complex. It's very, very difficult. And I don't even know if we can even get it right anymore. However, there is another way to comprehend the amount. And that is this. What we know is that one denarius is one day's wage. It's what you need to live for one day, what you get for one day's work. And so a hundred denarii is 100 days wages. Okay, so you'd have to work for a hundred days to make that. But one talent is much, much more than a denarius. Uh, one talent is a different uh, uh, kind of, of money. It's a different uh, um, amount. One talent equals 6,000 denarii, which is 6,000 days wages, which is roughly 16 years of work. And this man owed 10,000 talents. So converted to days, that's one servant owes the other servant 100 days of work. That's about three and a half months of work. But the servant owes the king 10,000 talents, which is 60 million days of work. That is over 164,000 years of labor. <laughs> that's what he owes him. Now, the, the, this knowledge, I mean... We lose this in translation when we read it and we just kind of gloss over this and say, oh, there are different amounts. That's a little bit more. That's a little less. But they're incomparable. They're not even to be put in the same sentence. Now, the amounts are incomparable 
And you have to keep this in mind when we go through the parable, because the text says, when the king began to settle the accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That's 164,000, over 164,000 years of work. Uh, And the first question that comes to mind is, how in the world do you even spend that amount of money? Uh, How do you do that? I mean, there's, there's no way you can do that. So it could be that the man was spending the money and he didn't really notice it or understand I don't think that's likely at all. Uh, There's no way you can spend or have that amount of uh, money and not realize a change in your life in some degree. Uh, In fact, it's actually more likely the second um, theory, which is that the guy didn't care. He just spent the money and he he had no care in the world. And in fact, he probably thought that the king would never ask him for an account for where that money went. That he just spent it frivolously, he did whatever he wanted with it, and said, ah, the king, he, he, hasn't, he hasn't come to me at the, uh, 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 you know, at the million mark, he's not going to come to me now, or tomorrow, or the next day. So he's never going to require an account. Um, so he didn't take the money seriously, uh, which would be comparable to somebody not taking their sins seriously. Uh, but then the text continues by saying this, <clears throat> and it says, since he could not pay... The master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees. Uh, I want to point out real quick that the man didn't fall on the ground when he found out the amount he spent. He didn't fall to the ground when he realized his debt. He fell to the ground when he realized that the king would punish him for what he did. The man didn't regret the debt. He regretted the consequence of the debt. He wasn't afraid of spending the king's money. He was afraid of spending his life in jail. He was afraid of having to pay it back. Nowadays, we would say something like, he's not so much sorry for his sin, but he's sorry that he was caught or something like this. And then the text says this. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring the king, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. <laughs> the, the reason I went through, through all that trouble earlier, um, uh, converting the denarii into days of work and the talents into days was so that you could understand this part, this line, when he says, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Do you realize how ridiculous that is? <laughs> it, it makes no sense. Uh, the best thing he could come up with in this situation, he says, I, I figured it out, have patience, you give me a little bit more time and I can pay you back and I will give you everything that I owe you. I mean, it's insane. Um, I'll make it up to you. He owes the king 164,000 years of work, more than a thousand lifetimes. And he thinks if he just had enough time, he could do it. He could make it up. This is, this is just uh, uh, delusional, absolutely. Now, the, the, then the text says this, and out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. So now the man doesn't have to pay the debt. He doesn't have to lose his wife or his children or all he has. He can continue living and he can go on with his life as if it never happened. This is beautiful. Uh, he didn't have to go to jail. And by forgiving him, the king gave him over a thousand lifetimes back. And I want you to know that it wasn't the servant who made the king do this. 
Nothing about the servant. The servant wasn't uh, sorrowful enough, remorseful enough. He wasn't begging enough. It was the pity and the compassion of the king that made him forgive him. Not the man's begging. All right. Now, that's the first uh, act, you would say, or the first part of the parable. The next part is this. The second part, and it says this. That the same servant who just had all of that forgiven... He went out and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, that is a hundred days of work. And seizing him, he began to choke. He began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And Zion, that is what it looks like when you receive the forgiveness of sins from God, but then refuse to forgive your neighbor. That is what it looks like. That is what it looks like when you hear the gospel purely preached into your ear, the full and the free forgiveness of every single one of your sins and thought, word, deed, desire, all of those forgiven and covered in a flood of the blood of Christ, your dear Lord, who spilled his life for you. And then you go out and you hold a grudge against your neighbor, against another member of the church, against your parents, against your spouse, or even your enemies. When you harbor resentment in your heart and bitterness and anger and rage and something else over some sort of grievance, you look exactly like that unmerciful servant. That This parable is what you look like to the king, what you look like to God when this happens. This cuts to the heart. This is deeply cutting us. I want to focus on a moment for a moment, why that servant didn't, why didn't he forgive his servant? Why, didn't, why did he receive all of that and then not forgive the other guy? Well, I'm su- suggesting to you this, that it is because of this. It's because that man who had his debt forgiven didn't take his debt seriously in the first place. Remember, he said, I'll pay it back, I, as if he thought, he, as if he could. Uh, he minimi- minimalized it and he uh, trivialized it Uh, And he really thought he could pay it back to the king. And the point is this, is that if he didn't take his debt seriously, then neither would he take the canceling of debt seriously. I I hope you see what's going on here. If you don't take your sin seriously, then neither will you take the forgiveness of your sins seriously. If you are delusional enough to think that you can actually pay God and work your way into his kingdom and give him back everything you truly owe him and make up for all sins, then that attitude and unbelief will come out against your neighbor. If you really think that you can pay God back for your sins, then you will make your neighbor do what? Pay you back for their sins against you. That is the heart of the matter. Um, the heart that refuses to forgive others is the same heart that refuses forgiveness for itself. 
I'll explain it another way. It, there aren't two kinds of forgiveness or two types of forgiveness. As if there were the forgiveness of God and totally disconnected it from it is the forgiveness of man. And they're just two separate realms. Um, the truth is there's only one forgiveness and that is found in the wounds of Christ, your dear Lord. And you don't have two hearts, one that receives from God and then one that deals with your neighbor. You have one heart, one only. Um, so that means that you either believe in the forgiveness of sins or you don't. Uh, if you forgive your neighbor, then it's because you believe that God forgives you. And if you don't forgive your neighbor, it's because before that you believe that God's forgiveness is either earned by you or merited by you in some way. It is that simple. You, you just can't split forgiveness apart. There is a permanent and indissoluble connection between God's forgiveness for you and your forgiveness for your neighbor. First uh, John 4.20 says, If anyone says, I love God, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. They can't be disconnected. So, the th- so this is the thing. You can't do this. The thing you cannot do is this. You can't say, well, I really, really believe in the forgiveness of sins when it comes to me, but I don't really believe in the forgiveness of sins when it comes to you. Or I believe that God should forgive me freely and without payment, but I don't believe that I should forgive you. I believe forgiveness is free for me, but I believe it costs something for you. And this is evil. And this is something that that is very serious that we need to repent of. So listen closely. If, If you are holding a grudge against someone, or you have anger in your heart against somebody else, or you begrudge them, or avoid them, or ignore them, or cut them out of your life, for the love of God, repent. Repent of your sin. I know that you have been wronged, but when you do this, you are in the wrong. Don't be like that unmerciful servant. That is what it looks like. In fact, whenever somebody sins against you, uh, and whenever somebody's sin comes to your mind against you, you run back and, and find the sermon and listen to it again, or open up the Bible and Matthew 18, and you read it again and again, and you think back to this parable, and you play it back in your mind over and over and over again, and you pray, and you come to church and receive the forgiveness of sins in Christ. You keep, you have to do that. Don't dwell on past sins or faults that others have committed against you. You forgive it, and you forget it. And you focus instead on the forgiveness of God for you. Uh, just an anecdote here. Uh, in 1676, uh, Paul Gerhardt, he was a Lutheran pastor from Germany uh, who wrote many, many hymns. Uh, I, I've told you this is my favorite hymn writer. Uh, we sing many of his hymns here at Zion. Uh, he wrote a letter to his son before he died. And he gave him practical advice to his son. Right? He, he left a, a tome, uh, a will to him. And there's a lot of stuff he wrote, but the second thing, the second point in that letter is this. He says, uh, son, never grow angry out of your office, out of your station in life, your vocation and calling. And if you find that anger has inflamed you, 
be perfectly silent and don't utter a word until you have first repeated to yourself the Ten Commandments and the Creed. And I think that's very good advice. Because if you're angry with someone else, the first thing you should do is just close your mouth. Think about the Ten Commandments. That is, think about not how sinful they are, but how sinful you are. How you have not kept the Ten Commandments in thought, word, or deed. And all the things that you have done against God and against other people. Think about that first. And then think about the Creed and recite it. And think on and consider how much God loves you. And how much he forgives you. How much he has wiped your sins away. How much he has redeemed you with his precious blood. You think about that first. And then once you've done that, then you can open your mouth. And I guarantee you that your heart will be much, much softer after having done that than without doing it at all. You will speak much more gently and lovingly toward your neighbor. Now, I know there's a lot to be said about this parable, and you probably have a million questions in your mind about Matthew 18 in general. Uh, And I know we don't have uh, all of the time in the world to consider this always in one Sunday or one sermon. But before closing, I want to address one final thing in this text, and, and it's this. I don't want you to think that God's forgiveness for you comes after your forgiveness for others. As if your forgiveness earns God's forgiveness for you. Because that is not what the Bible says. Yes, it is true uh, that you can refuse God's forgiveness by refusing to forgive your neighbor. But you cannot earn God's forgiveness for you by forgiving your neighbor. God forgave you before you could forgive anyone else. And so the entire parable is teaching you to treat others as God has already treated you. Verse 34 says, this is the very last verse. It says, uh, so the king put the unmerciful servant in jail. And the last verse, verse 35 says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now that's a warning to be sure. And don't take it lightly. But there is comfort. Because if God wants you to forgive your brother from the heart, then it is because God has already forgiven you from his heart. This whole parable is trying to get you to behave and act like God has toward you already. And this means that God doesn't forgive you because of a technicality or because you satisfied him or because of a a, a legal thing or thoughtlessly. He doesn't just brush it aside. He has forgiven you from the heart. From the the deepest abyss of his heart, he forgives your sins. The king forgave, remember, the king forgave the massive debt before the servant could forgive the other man's debt. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as in Christ God forgave you. Colossians 3.13 says, Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And all of our hope and strength and joy is found in that word found or or forgave is found in the word forgave, which is past tense that God forgave you before you could forgive. He spilled his blood to redeem you and forgive you before you could ask for it. Colossians 2.14 says that it says this about the massive 
massive debt which you could never pay back. This is what it says. Colossians 2. When you were dead in your trespasses, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That his love precedes your love. His forgiveness precedes your forgiveness. His mercy, your mercy. And all of this means that his forgiveness does not depend upon your forgiveness, but rather that your forgiveness depends upon his. So I know, I know people have sinned against you. A number of you have told me. Uh, and how they've wronged you. And they've injured you deeply. And they've scarred you. But you are a forgiven and redeemed child of God. You are baptized. All of your sins have been washed away. And God has forgiven you far more than anyone has ever or could ever sin against you. And out of his forgiveness for you, you can and you have the ability and the authority to forgive anyone their sins that they have committed against you. You have the Holy Spirit who dwells in your flesh. You cannot do it with your own power or your might. You can't muster up the strength to forgive by following some philosophy or psychological method or strategy or self-help book. You, can only, you will only do it. The only source of forgiveness is Christ. And so if you have trouble forgiving anyone, then you come to church, you hear the gospel, you receive the body and blood of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And from what you receive from that abundance, then you can forgive your neighbor. Today, once again, you have his word and he speaks forgiveness into your heart. And he forgives you all of your sin and he fills you with the body and blood of his dear son, Jesus Christ. If God keeps no record of your sins, then neither should we keep a record of our neighbor's sins. So dear Lord, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Amen. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Guard your hearts and your minds. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.